good to see you. It's good to be with you. If this is our first, my name is Joey Monteleone, and uh, I married a Hagen. So that that puts you in some understanding. Uh, Elena and I have been married uh, going on ten years this year, and we have three little kids. Nora's five, Callan is three, Isla is one, and we sleep zero minutes. So that gives you a sense of the season of life we're in. Uh, I have this love-hate relationship with my phone. I think we all do. Uh, we don't like that it can track us and monitor our usage, but we do like how convenient it makes life in all the completely unnecessary ways. Uh, one of the things I like to be able to do with my phone is to tell it a command and then have it carried out. For example, I'll get into the car and I'll say, call my sister. And Siri is great, but Siri always has a follow-up question. She'll say, you want me to call Nikki Tranquilla? Is that right? She double checks. Now, sometimes she gets it right. So double checking is fine. But other times what she heard is not what I said. So I'll either need to repeat it or the task won't get carried out. But it's a program on my phone. It's not really that big a deal, right? If it doesn't happen, if I call the wrong person, not that big a deal. But some things in life have bigger implications if we don't hear it right. Getting lost in an unfamiliar town could have been avoided if I double-checked, did I hear that right? Doing a job incorrectly could have been avoided if I'd asked, did I hear that right? Now, when do we ask that question? When do we ask, did I hear that right? Is it at the beginning when we're first given the information? Not usually. Not in my, not in my experience. It's usually when things aren't working out the way that we thought they were. It's when we hit a roadblock that we have to then go back to square one and say, well, I think based on what's happening to me now, I think based on my situation, maybe I didn't hear it right. Maybe my information is wrong. It's when we face opposition that we start to question the accuracy of that information. And while we do this in our jobs, we do this with our grocery lists, and sometimes we do it in our relationships, I also think we do it in our spirituality. It's when things aren't going so smoothly, it's only then do we ask, did I hear that right? Is that what God said? And we're going to look at that question and more in our passage in Ezra this morning, but let's open our time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the ability to gather, uh, both digitally and in person. And we join those around the world today in praising your name. We ask that in these next moments, uh, would you speak to us? by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit, help us to see you in a new way. Amen. So when I was talking to my father-in-law about where Terrell Road would be when I would be coming to speak, he told me, Ezra. And I thought, why? And then I started to think, why? Not just why are we in Ezra, but then I started to think, why is Ezra in the Bible? If the Bible is a collection of writings written by men as a unified narrative pointing to Jesus, what does Ezra have to do with Jesus? Does Jesus even mention the book of Ezra? In Luke chapter 22, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is speaking to two men, and he talks about the law of Moses, he talks about the Psalms, and he talks about the prophets interpreting in all of those scriptures things concerning himself. So that's not Ezra, because Ezra, as we heard last week, is considered history. And then my mind went to 2 Timothy 3.16, which many of you can quote, and says, 
Paul, the apostle Paul says, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Paul, a religious leader, someone familiar with spiritual practice, isn't referring to the New Testament when he says this. Paul's context for all scripture is not the gospels because they're not written at that point. His context is the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. His context is the poetry of David or the story of Job. His context is the major and minor prophets, but it's also the history lessons. And so I believe that there's something within this book that's not just good for us because it's in the Bible, but necessary, like Paul says, to train us, to equip us for every good work. Amen? Amen. So as we heard last week from Andy, the first few chapters of Ezra are almost all good news. Everything is up and to the right. God raises up a king who allows Judah to go back and rebuild the temple. And they return with gold and silver and livestock and gifts. And they begin to rebuild the altar and the foundation of the temple. They begin worshiping God again. And you really get a sense that God's hand is on these people. Things are going great. He's changing the hearts of kings. He's arranging all things and restoration to take place. And then you hit chapter four. And that's what I said when I was given this chapter. (laughs) You hit chapter four and five, and it's almost all bad news. Let's look at it, starting at chapter four and verse one. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Asaradon, king of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So there's opposition now. There's difficulty. The enemies are discouraging the families of Israel in the task of rebuilding the temple. They bribe officials to slow down the work. And as the chapter continues, if you keep reading in chapter four, they lodge accusations against the people to a new king. Then they start a letter writing campaign with gossip and lies. They imply that an insurrection is going to happen. And the king basically says, okay, enough. We're going to shut this down. And the work comes to a standstill. And it's not just for a few days. If you actually do the math, it says from the reign of Cyrus to the reign of Darius. That's 16 years. Nothing happens. That's a lot of months waiting for something to happen. That's a lot of years waiting for some progress. And so this begs the question, at least this begged the question in my mind. Did God bring them back to restore the temple or not? If he did, why all the difficulty? Why does God restore them only to face problem after problem where nothing gets done? At least to me, it doesn't make any sense. 
And sadly, this isn't just a historical problem that we find within the Bible. I think this is a modern question that we wrestle with a lot more than we'd like to admit. Where we believe we hear God say something, we believe he's moving in a direction, only to find there's more opposition than we expected. Which leads us to ask the question, did I hear that right? And why do we ask that question? Why do we ask, did I hear that right? Well, I think it's because of the dichotomy that we as human beings have set up. We think if God is leading in a direction, then there shouldn't be any opposition. And if he's not leading in a direction, then the opposition should be obvious. But life, I'm sure you can relate. My life has not been as black and white as I would like it to be. Bad things still happen to good people, so to speak. You still hit roadblocks, even if you believe God to be leading in a direction. God's blessing for my life has not always come with happiness and ease. It has come with trouble and struggle and loss and pain. And I think if we solely look at God in this paradigm, that if he's leading, there's no trouble. And if he's not leading, there's nothing but opposition. Then we slowly start to begin to question the fabric of our understanding of God. Is God all powerful? Does he control all things? Can he prevent bad situations and opposition in my life? If he is all powerful, is he incompetent and he can't prevent those things? If he isn't all powerful, what does that say about him? Or maybe there's something else entirely going on. Maybe something else we need to understand. And I think we need to back up and figure out where this mindset comes from. Why do we think that God's leading won't come with any opposition? Well, I think we often think that we can fleece God in our day-to-day lives. Fleece meaning that we can do what Gideon did in Judges chapter 6, where we can ask God for clear signs so that we can make good decisions. And let's be honest, we all want to make good decisions in our lives, right? We don't want to be like countless examples in the Old Testament, where because of disobedience, And wrong choices, we cause God to inflict judgment or wrath on us. We basically want to stay on God's good side with the decisions that we make. And with this mentality, the circumstances in our lives become a barometer for God's pleasure and working. I'll say that again. With this mentality, the circumstances in our lives become a barometer for God's pleasure and working. We're basically saying, and I'll speak from personal experience, if I get the promotion at work, then it's God's will. But now if I'm faced with multiple business trips, challenging coworkers and an overwhelming workload, it's not God's will. We need to be aware that for some of us, myself included, this is my default way of thinking about God. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to put God in these parameters because it basically limits his knowledge, his mercy, his grace, and his working in my life to the easiest, most pleasurable outcome, according to my standard. We're basically saying that if everything's good, it's God's will. And if it's not, then it's not God's will. But like we heard last week in Isaiah 55, 8, my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts, says the Lord. As nice of a verse of that is to just throw out there, it's very hard to understand. It's very hard to process. But obstacles cannot be an indicator of God's will or not, because the book of Job is a masterclass in this. 
So then we start asking another question. Well, how do we know God's will? We as followers of Jesus all want to do the will of God, right? So how do we know what it is? Well, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So are you saved? Are you being sanctified? Are you saying thank you? Just start there. That's challenging enough for a lot of us. And those are just a few of many verses about God's will. But if we are moving in that direction of being saved, of sanctification, of cultivating a thankful heart, we will be in God's will no matter what obstacles or opposition comes our way. And so speaking of opposition, what about opposition? Well, opposition is a real thing. And when I say opposition, I don't mean you didn't get likes on your Facebook post. That's another word that I think Christianity today has hijacked and misappropriated to mean oppression. But they're not the same thing. We use it anytime the road gets tough. COVID is oppression. Not getting a parking space is oppression. Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday is oppression. And while these examples are humorous, they reveal that we have a very low tolerance for inconvenience. That the slightest twist in the road of my plans leads me to believe that I'm being persecuted. So I think we need to understand oppression in a biblical sense. Oppression is a common thread throughout the Bible. The first 11 chapters of Genesis actually serve as a prologue for the rest of history. That as God creates order out of disorder, he tasks mankind with ruling over the earth, and yet we abuse that power and begin to rule over each other. And we see this with the violence of the world pre-flood. We see this in the Tower of Babel. We see this where powerful people use violence, corruption, and coercion to rule and abuse other people. Babylon, historically, is synonymous with oppression and oppressive systems. Babylon being the reason that this temple needs to get rebuilt in the first place. This is physical oppression. And sadly, it continues today with things like racism, sexism, you name it. The list goes on. And then in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul remind us in Ephesians 6, 12, that our oppression comes not only from physical oppression, it's not only flesh and blood, but it's also spiritual forces and wickedness in high places. Now, this opens the door to spiritual oppression, where we can talk about things like demonic influences, possession, wicked influences, and ways of attacking God's people to make their lives and their spiritual journeys more difficult. There's also things like emotional oppression with things like anxiety, mental illness, anxiety. I mean, these are real things. But I think the best way to understand oppression and opposition as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, is anything that aims to distract us from God and is working in our lives. You can personally fill in the blank with whatever's tampering with your trust in God, but opposition can be anything that aims to distract us from God and is working in our lives. And the reason I like that framework is because it provides perspective. It makes what's happening about you and not about the situation. I'll say that again. It makes what's happening about you and not about the situation. 
With that understanding, our difficult situations don't become lofty theological dialogues about God's will, although we can have them. They don't become paranoid conversations about someone coming to get us. What they become is about God and what he's using to shape and mold my heart to look more like his son. For example, when we started having kids, or when we started talking about having kids, rather, there wasn't a doubt in my mind. This is God's will for me. I will be a father. The Lord has spoken. But when that first diaper came, when that first all-nighter hit, when that first puke in the car became a reality, I seriously started to question God's will for my life. Because parenting is difficult. It's challenging, as many of you know. But what the challenge of parenting is teaching me is patience. It's teaching me grace. It's teaching me service, sacrifice, compassion. So I don't look at the tough situation I'm in and wonder if it was God's will or not. I see what he's doing in my life because of it. And with that perspective, now I'm walking in step with God because not only is he with me through it, but he's also shaping me through it. And that's not even opposition. That's just a life choice. And so if I'm walking in step with God, if I've surrendered my will to him for my life, if I'm laying down my own desires, like it says in Ephesians 4, literally anything that comes my way is now an opportunity for God to mold and shape me to be more like Christ. And guess what? I don't have to like it. I don't. I doubt David, Elijah, John the Baptist, even Jesus enjoyed their difficult situations. We are human after all. Let's not pretend and ignore that sometimes what we face is horrible, difficult, downright evil sometimes. But Romans 5 reminds us that we know that suffering or opposition produces perseverance and character and hope, which doesn't put us to shame. It's that perspective that we need when we face opposition so that we know there's a bigger picture. And that bigger picture is about the cultivation of my heart. And so with having that mindset that when we face opposition, it's not that we've made a wrong decision. It's not that we're outside of God's will. It's that he's using situations and circumstances in our life to mold us and shape us to be more like Jesus. What do we do with opposition when it comes? Well, there's two R's that we can apply if you're taking notes. And they're going to show up in chapter 5. So let's look at chapter 5 of Ezra. Starting at verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edu, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, like has been already said this morning, Ezra is one of many books that go together in the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah are connected chronologically. And Haggai and Zechariah fit within sentences found in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so what we need to do to understand what the prophecy was, we actually have to go to that book and see what was said. And if you go to the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 8, I'll just read it for us. It says, go up to the mountain 
and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So when the opposition comes for the Jewish people, the prophets remind them of what God said. And it hasn't changed. It's still the same thing. And that's our first R, remind. We too, as followers of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be reminded of what God said. When we, especially when we face opposition or difficulty. One of my favorite life verses is Isaiah 41.10. Have no fear for I am with you. Be not afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you and uphold you with my victorious right hand. John 16.33. I have told you these things, that's Jesus, so that in me, you might have peace. In this world, you will have opposition. You will have struggle. You will have difficulty. But take heart, I've overcome the world. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so not only are we not alone when we're confronted with times of trial and challenge, there is no, hey, just suck it up aspect of God. There's no, hey, just deal with it. There is always a promise found in in the words of God, but there's always a promise of his presence. For example, Callan doesn't like it when he has to go into the basement and the lights are off. Who does, right? So it's natural, but what Callan asks is not, hey, dad, can you turn on the lights? He says, hey, dad, can you come with me? And we will, we'll go, I'll go downstairs with him. And, you know, he just wants bungee cords. That's all, that's all he's focused on right now. Um, but we'll go down and the lights are still off he knows where they are. So what's changed? The only thing that's changed is now he's not alone. It's not that he wanted the lights on. He just wanted me with him. You see, the circumstances might still be dark, but now we're not alone. And similarly, when we are faced with opposition, with difficulty, with wondering if we heard it right, We must remind ourselves of what God has said, who God has promised us he is, a faithful, loving, present God, regardless of how much opposition lies in front of us. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you and do not fear or be dismayed. And I'll be honest for a second. I'm really bad at this really bad at centering myself on God when things become more difficult or challenging. That's why I asked to sing that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so reminding ourselves of the promises that God has made of who he is allows us to gain perspective when we are walking through difficulty. And as you continue reading through the chapter of chapter five, the people are questioned again about the building process. The governor and all the associates come to them and say, hey, who authorized this? Who told you you could do this? And the people lay out a detailed description of everything they've walked through. Of all the challenges, of all the the wins and the losses. But what's interesting, and as you read it, the thing that you notice is the resolve they have. That's the second R, resolve. 
they were committed to the process and the project because they had been reminded of what God said. Don't you think that the people wanted to give up after 16 years? Some of us gave up on our New Year's resolutions after 16 days. Some of us give up on difficult situations after 16 minutes. There is a determination empowered by the words of God that despite what lies in front of me, regardless of what I'm about to face, I know that the Lord is with me and the tough situations don't determine his sovereignty. They only make the story better. The people here lay out a detailed description of everything that happened, and they had faith that since God had led them this far, that this was not a period in the story, but a comma in what he was writing. And some of us in the church of 2022 need to have that resolve as well. That despite the opposition, despite how difficult it is, I know that he who began a good work will be faithful, period. But it's not just that he's faithful. He'll be faithful to complete it. That's Philippians 1.6. Now, this doesn't mean that we become arrogant, self-righteous, immovable objects in the name of Jesus. This doesn't mean that we ignore everyone and everything and say, well, God said it, God told me, and I don't care what you say. We can't become holy idiots. But what this does mean is that we become grounded in the word of God, despite what comes our way, because we've reminded ourselves of who he is, and we've become resolved in that reality. That regardless of what shows up, regardless of the people that come and go, if COVID is still going on, whoever's in the White House, it doesn't matter. We remain faithful to him who called us into a relationship with the circumstances? No, with himself. And that when things become more challenging, we remind ourselves of who God has revealed himself to be, a loving, patient, caring, present, never leaving God. As we close, what are some of the areas of your life that you need to remind yourself of who your God is? Are there issues or struggles or opposition that is tampering with your trust in God? Remind yourself. Remind yourself, look to scripture like we opened with all scripture is God breathed and useful, useful to remind our leaky hearts of who we've placed our faith in. And once we remind ourselves, then resolve, fully commit to the process of walking in step with God, whatever comes our way. That's the message of Ezra four and five. That God is more interested in the journey than the destination. He is more interested in who we are becoming than who we think we should automatically be. And in this process, we became more and more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. God, for some of us, we feel a message like this more because of the opposition we're currently facing. Would we become a people that remind ourselves of your faithfulness? and a people that resolve in the reality of who you are. May we live changed lives this morning from meditating on your word, and not simply just to become better Christians, but to impact the communities and the people that we come in contact with. We do this in your name. Amen.